We are in part seven of this series in Isaiah 36 to 39, and it's my intention that we get through chapter 38, all of it, this morning. And then next week, um, we will come back to chapter 39 and see the conclusion of this section in this beautiful book. Um, someone asked me if I was going to continue going through Isaiah. I don't think so. I, there's, I guess you can call them spiritual temptations, if you will, to keep going because it's beautiful. Um, I thought about maybe I would just go to 40 to 48. Um, but once I did that, surely I would say, well, I have to go now from 49 through 55. And then once I do that, guess what? Then it will be in chapter 66, but it'll be year 2000. I'm not sure what it'll be then uh, by the time I finish it. Um, so a great book. Uh, hopefully it's been helpful to you um, because the theme, in fact, is absolutely helpful. Uh, this reality that we worship, uh, we rest in a trustworthy God. And God is trustworthy, is he not? Absolutely, God is trustworthy. And if we can just in our own souls uh, remind ourselves of that, mature in that reality, and we can rest in him because the question is really, uh, what is the other place of rest? And we can rest in our own abilities. Um, how many of you have been successful in that? Resting in your own abilities? No, not really. How many of you have chosen to rest at some point in time in your own wisdom and insight and skills and education? And that doesn't turn out well, even when it goes well. You say, wait a minute, that's a contradiction. Because if you rest it, a person can in their own strength, and you can get things done. I'm not talking about that. You can accomplish many things. But if you haven't relied on the grace of God, even at the end of whatever you've accomplished, it really is unsuccessful, isn't it? Say, for instance, um, here at the seminary, students are going to start in a couple of weeks. As a matter of fact, some are taking courses starting Monday. And I've seen it over the years. Uh, students that rely on themselves, their ability, their giftedness, their background, and they can go through and they can walk across the podium and it really isn't successful because they will have to admit I relied on self so much. I've talked to many students and they've said, oh, this is so good that I'm learning to pray, that I'm learning to just read my Bible, that I'm learning to just rest in the Lord because my tendency is towards what? Self-reliance. Now, does anyone in this room ever battle with self-reliance? You just say amen like a Baptist right now. Amen. amen. You do. Um, we do, so we have to be reminded that we should not trust in self, but in a sufficient God who knows all things, who controls all things. And if we can rest there, then there's true solace. See, when we're resting in self, there, that brings anxiety that comes with it because we're wondering and it also brings even physical problems as well. You rest in self for too long, then what happens to the body? It begins to, de to decay. There are problems even with the mind. And so when we rest in the Lord, um, we can avoid those things. So this is a great passage that we're going to look at here. And I would say this, that one of the greatest joys and privileges and mysteries is this experience of our righteous prayers having an effect on eternal matters, eternal matters. 
And we have the opportunity and the privilege to trust God and ask him even to change the condition and at times the circumstances of our lives. But however, there's some principles that we have to follow because some of that language may sound familiar. It's maybe something that you've heard before. It may be something I would think that you've even been critical of, at least some of the language, because people today would tell you, all you have to do is pray the right prayer, and there it is. Claim the right promise, and there it is. Not confess certain things negatively, and you can avoid a certain lifestyle. You can avoid a certain habit. But if you would just speak these words, our words can then speak even our circumstances that we desire into existence. And now we become even divine. We become like God when God said, let there be light. So what we're essentially doing is we're taking on this sort of divine measure and we're making the circumstances of our lives. I'm not talking about that at all. And that's why I said there's a mystery to this idea of prayer when we can go to the living God and say to him, Lord, do you hear me? Will you intervene? Will you change this circumstance? There are a number of things that we should pray about. We should pray for. I just uh, was reading, um, we get uh, on a consistent basis, the voice of the martyrs uh, magazine. And there was a story, wonderful story of a, a gentleman who was a former um, army officer in Myanmar, and he absolutely hated Christians. He was raised uh, in a Buddhist family, and the Buddhist family um, taught him that, in fact, Jesus was a prophet, but yet he went astray. And once he went astray, he was crucified, and now he's an evil spirit. So he grew up believing that. So he would persecute um, Christians. He would persecute Christian soldiers, and to the Lord did what? What do you think happened? <laughs> the Lord intervened in his life. And you might even say, then, what does that have to do with this message that I'm talking about? Because the Lord is a God that saves, amen? amen. And one way, and this is a, a great mystery as well, we believe that God is a sovereign God, and we believe, I would teach, we would teach here at this church that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Elect. God believes, um, or we believe that God in his sovereign choice has decided that all of you that know the Lord Jesus Christ in this room, God, before there was a universe, decided that he would save you. This is God's foreknowledge. He foreloved you, and he chose you, and then he called you, and then you came to faith. But a part of that theology, theological reality is this. People prayed for your what? Salvation. People labored for you, at least I hope. And you should be laboring for the salvation of those around you, should you not? And this is why I think about even Peter would say to uh, wives that are with um, husbands who are disobedient, and he tells them to live in a certain way that hopefully uh, they might come to their spiritual senses even if they're disobedient to the word. And we should also be praying for people that don't know the Lord. And God uses our prayers in this sovereign plan. We should not neglect it. This is the means for his sovereign will to even unfold in this world. And that's why it's a privilege that we should be able to pray. 
And I would say prayer is a means, of course, and God delights in his people using this means to call upon him in time of need. And we all have times of need. You probably, most likely, you're in some need right now. And that need may be small, it may be great. I would probably say that every day we're in some need, are we not? And some of those days are greater and it's more difficult. And you know friends right now. You know someone right now. There's people in this very room. You're in great need. But what are you going to do? I mean, where are you going to go? What will you rely on? What what sufficiency will you strive for? Will it be your own or will it be the living God? Um, We have to call upon the Lord in prayer. So in chapter 38 of Isaiah, we're going to take note of five principles. We see these five principles of trust and prayer that are working together, and they're interwoven through the fabric of the text itself. And hopefully they'll motivate you to trust God and to pray to him in time of need. Let me give them all to you now. Number one is this, understand that trials may come in the midst of faithfulness. Trials may come in the midst of faithfulness. Then number two, understand that prayer should include sincere emotions. And we're going to notice that from the text. Number three, understand that prayer should expect a sovereign God's response. And there's reason that I worded it that way, because we're going to unfold that a sovereign God's response. Sometimes people pray, and in their mind, they're looking for that response. That's the only response that I think is acceptable. No, we're wanting a sovereign God to respond to us, and we want a sovereign answer, do we not? And number four, understand that prayer should have a priority of worship. When I pray to the living God, and maybe I'm asking him to change the circumstances of my life, what is my priority? What is my heart be? It should be worship. And this is what we're going to see in verses 9 to 20. So verse 1, trials may come. Verses 2 and 3, emotion should be a part of our prayers. 4 through 8, expect that a sovereign God will respond. 9 through 20, make sure we prioritize with worship when we pray. And then number 5, understand that answer is often in with intervention from a faithful God. And we might even say merciful God. And that's verses 21 and 22. So let's dive right in. Number one, understand that trials may come in the midst of faithfulness. Notice verse one of Isaiah 38. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. So in those days, question is what days? Now, uh, without giving you all the detail of it, and I, I debated how much I should give you as to the dating um, uh, theories behind exactly when this took place. But overall, um, commentators, scholars, particularly those of Isaiah, um, see that Isaiah 38 is out of order. So Isaiah 38, for, a re- for some reason, Isaiah has placed it after chapter 37, And there's an emphasis that I think you'll see as we continue through the passage itself. So in those days, actually the days that he's referring to is when Isaiah, that is Hezekiah, is also facing 
the difficulty of Shennacherib sieging the city. So in the midst of what is happening with Shennacherib and battling the Assyrians, God also says to him, you are ill, you have a sickness, you are going to die. Life is going to flee from you. And we're going to come back to that thought later on. But what's interesting, notice what it says in verse 1, thus says the Lord, a pronouncement is made. So the question would be, if God just says you're, going, you're, going, you're ill and you're not going to live, why pray? God already said it. He gave his word. And what have we been looking at as we started Isaiah 36? Time and time again, the Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said, don't fear the Assyrians. The Lord says, I will protect the city. The Lord said, I will be with you. The Lord says, rely on me. The Lord said, don't listen to them. And now the Lord says, so you might want to say, well, if the Lord says, then let me just get my house in order. I'm going to die. Because all, the Lord said he was going to protect the city, and he did. The Lord said, rely on him, and I did. The Lord said he's going to exalt his name, and he did. So if the Lord says this, well, who am I to say, Lord, but can you hear me, please? I, I still want to pray to you. And this is a great lesson about prayer, that although a pronouncement had come from the Lord, Hezekiah nonetheless goes to the Lord and he asks a merciful God, God, will you have mercy on me? Will you intervene? Some people don't get a word like this from the Lord, but they get it from a doctor, do they not? And they, that he makes a pronouncement. It is stage four. You have three months. And one can say, well, it's stage four cancer. It's pancreatic cancer. Um, the survival rates are, are minuscule, if that, particularly now that they've discovered it at this level. What is the point of even praying? Well, there's always a point of prayer. And we should be a people who would pray. And even in this circumstance, when the Lord makes the pronouncement that you are ill, you're going to die, still seek a merciful God. Seek a merciful God. Number two, understand that prayer should include sincere emotions. Let's just read verses two and three. Notice what it says. Verse two, then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, remember now, Lord, I beseech you. Now I have how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and I've done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah, what does it say at the end in the Nazareth? What does it say? Wept how? Bitterly. He wept bitterly. So first it says to the wall. Then he prayed and he wept bitterly. To the wall. He, it, it, it's some who have asked the question, is this like the wall of the temple? Is it what we know today to be the welling wall? No, it's not. It's simply the wall that's in his room. So Hezekiah gets um, word that he is ill and he's going to die. Isaiah brings him that word, and immediately you can imagine him. He, there he is in his room, and he just turns towards the wall, and he prays to the Lord. 
Why does he do that? Uh, some, and I wonder at times um, that sometimes commentators uh, go a bit too far and they want to say, well, he's sort of being immature about it, almost like a kid that's gotten bad news and they sort of turn away from their mom or dad or something. Oh, what are you talking about? No, he's not. He's just told he's going to die. So what he does, he turns towards the wall to say, let me engage with God. Let me talk with the Lord. The same Lord that has brought me this word that I'm going to die, let me talk with this God, this faithful and merciful God, and see if perhaps he might intervene. What Hezekiah is doing here, it's his moment of going to his closet. You remember Jesus said what? When you pray, go where? Go to your closet. And when you go to your closet and you pray to the Lord in secret, the Lord will hear. And that closet is not some literal place. You can go to your closet right now. There have been times I've been in a church service and I go to my closet because I'm asking, Lord, will you take this truth and use it not only in my heart, but in the hearts of others? God, I know there's some people that need to hear this right now. And as a matter of fact, I've gotten into a habit of about every five weeks or so, you know, you normally see me sitting sort of that first row uh, right on the corner there, sort of, well, informally my seat. Because <laughs> you know how church folks are, right? It's like, why are you here? Because I'm here to worship God, but you're sitting in my, well, the place that I normally sit. <laughs> you, exactly, you know exactly what I'm talking about here, right? And that doesn't change, even culturally. Southern folks are that way, white folks are that way, black folks are that way, brown folks are that way, right? You have your seat, you have your seat. So, but what I do every five weeks or so, sit in the back. And in one, I stumbled upon it because one day I was just late getting into the service, and that was an act of providence because I met some people that needed prayer, and I ended up praying for them, and I went in, and I thought, I'm not going to walk up front, and I just sat in the back, and as I started to listen, I was just looking at everyone, and I said, this is great, and I just started praying. John Mark Arthur would say a couple words, I prayed. I'd hear a song, and I'd pray, and I'd look at people, and I saw how they interacted. I saw people that were like, oh, my goodness. And I pray for them, Lord, that you convict their heart, that they're indifferent to the word of God. And I right now I see the kids, the junior high, some of the high school kids in that far section over there, and they're doing this. Lord, if you convict their heart, let them know this is a place of worship. And there are people here that I know don't know you, if you would open their eyes. So during the service, I'm praying during that time. See, that was my closet. I don't have to go to a back room. I don't have to kneel at an altar before a cross. And what Hezekiah does, he turns to the wall and he's saying, God, let me interact with you in this moment. Let me seek your face. Then notice what else it says. He turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Well, the Lord just told you that you're about to die that you're ill and you will not live. So why pray to him? Are you trying to undo the sovereign God's will for your life? I'm going to interact with this God and seek his mercy. And this is what we see consistently throughout scripture. So let's pause for a moment. And I want to take you on a bit of a journey um, because this, when we think about praying throughout the Old Testament, and I just want to focus on the Old Testament 
uh, we see prayer through many different windows. And let me give you some of those windows because of different words that are used for prayer. Uh, and the first word, actually is a word that we, use, we find here for prayer. It means to intercede. It means to meditate. It means to supply justification for. And supply justification is the idea that, Lord, I'm interceding. Here's the reason that perhaps you should do something on this person's behalf or even on my behalf. You see it like 84 times in the Old Testament. Example would be Abraham, he's going to intercede for Abimelech, or Moses intercedes for the people, or Samuel for the people. And right here in Isaiah 38, 2, Hezekiah is interceding for himself. And perhaps, as we'll discover later on in the passage, perhaps Hezekiah is also praying for his people as well. And there's a reason he might be praying for them. And then... Prayer also means this intense supplication. We see this in Job 33, Exodus 9, Exodus 10. It's this idea that when we're praying, it means to be in earnest. We think about earnest, we mean, well, what's the word? Give me another word for earnest. I'll let you interact with me for a moment. What's another word for earnest? What would we say? What's that? Eager, absolutely. What else? I heard it. Perseverance, right? Persistent, right? Serious. Sober would be these words for earnest. So to be in earnest, this is another word for prayer. Here's another word that is used for prayer. And it's used only of David to to seek from a king. It means to inquire. So when we go to the Lord in prayer, we're saying to him, we go to the ultimate king, do we not? Isn't it interesting? In this narrative, we see the battle of two kings, Hezekiah, a king, Shennacherib, a king, and it's also interesting that Rapshikah, remember we've noted this before, when Rapshikah addresses Hezekiah, he never refers to him as king. He simply says Hezekiah. That's unimportant because Hezekiah knows the king, amen? And so now what he's going to do is he's going to go to the king and ask, will you intervene? This is still your kingdom. Yes, the Syrians are great people. They have... Uh, wiped out all the nations around them. They have destroyed 48 cities of Judah. And now here we are under siege, but yet I ask for your intervention. Another word for prayer means to, to literally to bend, to bow, to pray, to humbly submit. We see it in Ezra 16 and also in Daniel 16. So we, we obviously get with that sense if we're bowing down Uh, If we're bending, there's a sense of humility that comes with it. And then a next word, another word for prayer means to describe deep and intense pondering, um, to meditate, to contemplate, to think on. And this should be a part of our prayer life. God, what thoughts can I have of you? And contemplate those thoughts about God. What This is sort of a a missed um, Christian discipline Christians tend to not meditate on God the way that they should. Do you agree with that? They don't. We don't. That is to pause and think about the Lord. I was um, talking with some of the elders at our elders' prayer time this morning about just reading the Bible this year, and some of you post it like you can read through in one year, and I, and I posted something about the, um, on our Facebook page uh, just about the New Testament six times, and it's not much work. 
And all three of us in this discussion was saying, yes, when we just read the Bible, but we read it without doing other work. What do I mean by that? I, I put my pen aside. I don't, when I read it, at least when I do this sort of reading, I don't look for words. I don't look for cross-references. I have thoughts. Maybe in my mind I cross-reference something, but I don't do any other work. I just read it because the word of God tells us, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is what? That word is truth. And then just to meditate on God, to pause and think about who God is and how great he is, it is lost often. Uh, Another word for prayer means a specific request. We see it in 1 Samuel 12. 1 Samuel 12, Israel is asking for a king, so a specific request. And so in our prayers, there's an implication that we should be even specific when we pray to the living God. Another word for prayer means expression of a, a reverent heart requesting before an awesome God. There's a sense that some believe it's this idea that there's complete unworthiness before God. We see it in Exodus 33 because Moses is interacting with this great and awesome God that he even fears. We see it in Numbers. We see it in Judges. Judges 13, remember Manoah and his wife, it's like they, they're interacting with God and Manoah thought he was going to die because he realized that was the angel of the Lord. We're going to die. And his wife says, hold on, Manoah. He just made a promise that we're going to have a son so we can't die. And he said, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Amen. And then the, another word for prayer means employing God's mercy. Exodus 33, 19, God will be gracious. Job nineteen sixteen to entreat. Um, uh, Psalm 51, to show pity or mercy, or beseech, beseeching the Lord. The next word, it, it's close to this idea to entreat, but it, it, the implication is that you come to the Lord apart from human strength. Exodus 32, 11, it says, And Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why doth, still have my King James in there, Thine anger burn against thy people whom thou hast brought from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. So he entreats the Lord, but he's coming apart from human strength. As I said in our introduction, our tendency is to come with human strength. But what does human strength gain you? Even if the result is perhaps what you wanted, it's really not successful because you've done it apart from the grace of God. So some pictures of prayer. So then we can say when we look at all these pictures of prayer, it means that we must come humbly before the the Lord. And there's a host of concerns and emotions that we even express when we pray to him. So he prayed. And then notice verse 3. Remember. So he says, remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight, and Hezekiah wept bitterly. So let's just address Hezekiah's approach to the Lord, what he's essentially saying, God, how can I, why would you allow me to die? I'm right now fighting this battle against your enemy, not just the enemy of your people. If they're enemy of Judah, they're your enemy as well. I don't understand this. Remember, I've walked before you faithfully. And in fact, he had. Go with me. Go back with me, because we've noted this before. 
But go back with me to 2 Chronicles. Go to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 32. 2 Chronicles 32. And it says, and this is an important verse. We've noted it before, but I remind you again. Verse 1, after these acts of faithfulness, Shennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. What's the important phrase in that verse? What does it say? After these acts of faithfulness, Hezekiah was, in fact, faithful. And you see it throughout. Um, And chapter 29, we see his acts of faithfulness there. Look at chapter 29, just briefly. And he says, verse 2, he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. He brought in priests and Levites and gathered them into the square. And then in verse 5, he says, listen to the Levites, consecrate yourselves. So he begins the reform. Verse 20, same chapter, then Hezekiah arose early and assembled the princes of the city, and went up to the house of the Lord. You see his faithful acts in 29 and 30 as well. There's burnt offerings to the Lord. Chapter 30, he is being faithful. Chapter 30, verse 1. Now Hezekiah sent to all Israel and to Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. Don't go and worship in the places that you shouldn't come to Jerusalem and worship properly, is what he's saying. We see similar acts in verses 18 to 20. We see it in 22, 26. And again, go with me to 31 again. It says um, in chapter 31, now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the city of Judah, broke the pillars of, in pieces and cut down the ashram and pulled down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin, as well as Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. Then all the sons of Israel returned to their cities, each to his own possession. And you see this going all the way through verse 3, then verse 11 and verse 20 and verse 21. Again and again, what? He was a faithful king. It's evident. Then why is he going to die? See, this flies in the face with this foolishness that we hear sometimes in pulpits. That if you would just be faithful, then you will have this blessing on you and you'll be protected from the cancer. You'll never get that doctor's report. No, deal with this. Deal with this. I I wonder sometimes what Bible are these people reading? I mean, just a basic look at Scripture tells you that God is a sovereign God that at times says, although you are faithful, difficulty will come. Heartache will come. Pain will come. And God uses the difficulty and the heartache and the pain to sanctify you and to conform you more into the image of Christ. This is what a sovereign God does, does he not? Why would I not want that? Well, because in my opinion, some people really don't want Christ. I mean, they want some of the treasures of Christ, but they don't want the king. 
If you want the king, <laughs> you take everything that he gives you and that he allows in your life. Because this is a merciful and kind king and a wise king that knows everything that is good for your life. Now, the things that sometimes we say are good in society, but now it's leaked into the church, um, aren't always the best for us. And everyone in this room, if you have any degree of maturity, you would agree with me on this, that you know that the moments in life when you've gone through difficulty and heartache and pain and you trust that the Lord and you come out on the other end, better, do you not? A better individual. This is what the Lord does. But notice something else. Go back with me to Isaiah 38. Isaiah 38. And I love this sort of study. I love people looking at their Bibles. I love hearing the turning of pages. This is like exciting to me. It really is. That's what I said before. Somebody should develop it like an app for the iPad so when you turn it, it actually makes a sound. <laughs> I mean, I just, it's, Preachers, at least real preachers, I think, when you hear people in their Bibles and looking down, that's energizing. Now, notice what it says. Verse 3, it says, so he, he goes, he prays, he beseeches the Lord. He says, Lord, I walk before you. It's true. And then he says, he wept bitterly. Notice with me, Psalm 6. Psalm 6, if you will. Go with me to Psalm 6. Just briefly, uh, Psalm 6, it says in verse 6, well, actually, let's just read through it. Um, verse 1, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Essentially, the psalmist is saying, David is saying, Lord, I'm crying out to you. Don't you hear me? How long do I have to wait for you to intervene? Then he says in verse 4, return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your what? Your loving kindness, not because of me. Verse 5, for there is no mention of you in death and in show who can give you thanks. I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my what? Tears. Tears. Crying out to the Lord. Isn't it interesting? Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. Jesus Christ, he says, he learned obedience from the things in which he suffered. And he cried out with loud crying and with tears. And he was heard because of his piety. So emotions and suffering, God is using. And even when we pray to the Lord, we should use tears at times. And when I say use them, be careful in that language. Uh, I don't mean that sometimes uh, all of you that have had kids, probably you remember your kids coming to you and they can cry crocodile tears. Oh, don't, don't even try it. You know you're not, you're not that disturbed over what I've told you you can't do but they can conjure up the tears. And there's some actresses that I've seen, I was like, my goodness, she's good. How can she cry like that? I mean, this emotion, there's one particular person I've seen on a couple just clips, I'm thinking, how does she do that? But we're talking about tears that come from the heart. 
Because sometimes our children may come to us and they are real tears. And remember, we have a heavenly father and we should go to him as children with real tears. God, I don't want to die. Put your house in order. You're ill and you're going to die. And we have to go to our heavenly father at times with tears. Maybe you should shed some tears for your spouse. Shed some tears for your children. Share some tears for your co-workers who don't know the Lord. Share some tears for your enemies. Even my reading recently as I'm talking about, you know, going a number of times through the New Testament, reading again, well, yes, pray for your enemies. Wait a minute, pray for your loved ones. What about praying for your enemies? Share some tears for them. And I do agree what... um, Uh, I'm reminded even in this moment what George Whitfield said about hell. He says, even when preaching hell, you should always preach hell with tears. Do you offer sincere tears before the Lord? Here is this man. Hezekiah is a man. I mean, he's a warrior. But nonetheless, before the living God, he's simply what? A child. Don't lose that childlike perspective. And what you must do is even follow Hezekiah at times. Lord, Part your heart with tears. It was um, Puritan Thomas Brooks who said, and I love this, he says that cold prayers always freeze before they reach heaven. I love that. And so that sort of wording, sort of poetic way of saying, you know, insincere prayers, prayers that are not from the heart, uh, they don't make it to heaven. Now, there's some theological things we'd have to think through on that, but you get his point, right? Be sincere when you come to the Lord. And sometimes, this is absolutely true, sometimes because we are people that tend towards self-sufficiency, I know that I can. I'm not sure about you. Perhaps you have arrived, but nonetheless, so let me just speak to myself then. If we tend towards self-sufficiency, God will put us in a situation where we have no answers, we have no strength, and all we can do is cry to the Lord. Amen? And that's a good position to be in. It's a good position to be in. God sometimes has to break us. And then he can pour into us. So tears, don't balk at people that cry. Sometimes I hear, and I'll just say it, be plain with you. I'm always trying to be plain with you. In our circles, conservative Bible circles, uh, we see somebody crying. Oh, look at that person. He should be more dignified with himself. Well, deal with this. Why is he crying? Because maybe God is touching his heart. Maybe, maybe God is breaking him. Maybe he has a greater sense of his own sin. That's the reason that he's crying. So be careful. Don't, be, don't get this sense of a false piety about what it means to seek the face of the living God. So why weeping, though? The question is, it's reasonable to ask. So why weeping? There's some, I think, some real reasons that perhaps he's, he, he's weeping. First of all, Hezekiah is young. And if we, we go through the dating of everything, when he began his reign, uh, when Shennacherib comes to Jerusalem, he's 39 years old. 39 years old. That's young, is it not? That's very young. That's, even I'm young, but I'm not 39. It's like, you know, kids, the kids start to say, Dad, you're old. Hold on a minute here. 
I'm middle-aged. <laughs> well, that must be a long age because you're still, you're still, you're old, right? Right? So he's 39. You get word at 39, you are about to die. Put your house in order. Do you want to hear that? No. Remember now at this point, we also do some other dating. It goes back to what I said about in those days. He has no heir. He has no heir. Uh, because if we were to consider 2 Kings 21 and 1, um, and relating that to when Manasseh would become king, then these extra 15 years, Manasseh would have been born probably three years into it. So he has no heir. So the question is now, huh, if I have no heir, then a part of his prayer, when I rem- remember when I mentioned that he's interceding for himself and perhaps even his people, he's also saying, wait a minute, Lord, how can I die? You promised that there would always be a king on the throne of Judah. I have no heir. Lord, let me live. And then on top of that, he's dealing with, if we date it correctly, and he's either right before the siege in Jerusalem or in the midst of the siege in Jerusalem, he's dealing with all of that. See, so we have to be people of prayer. Do you agree? And we must persevere in prayer. Sometimes we want to give up. We think, I've prayed about this so often. I've prayed about it enough. I've, Lord, I've asked you to intervene. You seem to not be hearing me. And we can be like the psalmist when he, we looked at Psalm 6. How long, O oh Lord? But keep praying. Persistence is necessary. This is why the scripture tells us to pray without what? Ceasing. Without ceasing. Persistence. An example, the Marines of Iwo Jima, quote, from Captain Dave Seravance, seven officers went into the battle with me. Only one, me, walked off Iwo. He's talking about the classic battle of Iwo Jima and the Marines there. It was fierce. It was hard. It was difficult. He says, we suffered 75% casualties. Our company started with 310 men, 75% casualty. Only 50 men boarded the ship after the battle. But they persevered. What is one of the great symbols for the Marines is holding up the flag where? Jima. If you were to go to Quantico, Virginia right now, and you go to the Marine Museum, you see the museum, it has a certain design to it. What's interesting, you can see it from a great distance as it comes up from among the trees, and it's really based on that flag being held up. Perseverance. This is why you must persevere in prayer. Don't give up because that answer doesn't come. That person is not saved. That spouse is not walking with the Lord. That child is not following the way that you would hope that they might. The difficulty that you're facing wherever you are in life, persevere in prayer. Here's a third principle that we should consider. Third principle, I think I'm going to make it. Number three, understand that prayer should expect a sovereign God's response. Verses four through eight, 
it says, then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying. Now, what's interesting about it, I want you to note something, and I think it's worthy of it. Go with me to 2 Kings. So we see the account of this in 2 Kings. Go with me to 2 Kings 20. Second Kings 20, then verse 4, yep. Um, I'll just read verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying that he was upstanding. It was right. He wept bitterly. But notice verse 4, which we don't get here in the Isaiah passage, at least the timing of it we don't see here. He says, before Isaiah had gone out of the middle of the court, the word of the Lord came to him. Isn't that interesting? So here it is. Um, Isaiah comes to Hezekiah, put your house in order. You're about to die. So Hezekiah turns to the wall. He's praying to the Lord. He's weeping bitterly. Isaiah's going back out, and God says, turn back around. I have a word for you to give to Hezekiah. Expect that a sovereign God will respond to you. Notice I told you before, I noted sovereign God for a particular reason, because he may not answer that way. He may not. In this example, Hezekiah is walking, and the Lord says, here's the word. Here's my answer to my servant Hezekiah. And he turns back around, he gives him the word. But sometimes, in God's sovereignty, Isaiah, if you will, keeps walking and walking and walking and walking and walking. And this is why you have to persevere. So he gave him in answer. And he says, go and say to Hezekiah, let's go back to Isaiah 38. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord. Wait a minute, Lord, you just said that he was going to die and not live. Put your house in order. And here's the beauty and the mystery and the awesomeness of serving a sovereign God. The God of your father, David, this is important. The God of your father, David, why does he inject that? Because he's also reminding him that indeed you will have a seed. I'm going to be faithful to you because there will be a seed. And for Manasseh, although he will be a wicked king, even if we look at the account that's in Chronicles, Manasseh, by God's allowing him to be taken away by the Babylonians, repents, and he brings reform. We don't always get the rest of the story about Manasseh. And from that seed will be another and another, and there would be the seed, Jesus Christ. I'm going to be faithful to David and my promise to him. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your, what does he say? Why, did, why does God mention that? Well, you thought maybe I was stressing too much earlier about emotions and prayer. No, I wasn't. It's right here. Deal with it. I've heard your prayer. What? I've seen your tears. Now, notice what God doesn't mention. And not that he could not have. He doesn't mention, yes, that's right. You have been faithful. Yes, that's right. I know your track record. Yes, that's right. He doesn't mention that, but what he does mention is, I've heard you. And in your tears, I see your sincerity. And in my compassion and in my sovereignty, perfectly merged together, 
I grant you the request. And what am I going to do? I will add 15 years to your life. Wow, what an episode. Think about that. I was um, talking with my, both my sons were here, older sons were here for a moment. Now they're back. And um, back to the stations now. And I was talking about this lesson. And, and we were discussing the idea of how do you live when God says to you, I'm giving you 15 years? And think with me right now. It is January 5th, 2000, what is it now? 20 now, right? Right, I was about to say 19. 2020, and God says, I'm going to give you 15 more years from this date. How would you live? And so we were in that discussion. And then both of us said, yeah, you're right. But the question is, we may say to ourselves, that 15 years, I am really absolutely going to go for it right now. Everything that I have, I'm going to live to the nth degree. I have 15 years. I'm going to give it my all. Then we both, you think you, you, you may know where we went. Then why don't we do that now? I mean, 15 years, you know you're going to die. You may not see January 6th. Those people that gathered in Texas last week, I mean, they gathered in a church, they come to a place of worship. Let me give praise and honor to the living God. No one expected that those people would not walk out again. So the question, how will you live knowing that God is giving you life and you have life. Yes, it'd be great to say, if I knew 15 years, this is how to order it. Year one, year two, year three, year four. But how will you order your life? He gave him 15 years. He says in verse six, I will defend you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. I will deliver you, and I will defend. He's already said that. Because in verse 35 of chapter 37, notice what he says. I will defend this city to save it for my sake and for my servant David's sake. And this is another reason we believe that the episode is out of order. Because remember, at the end of 37, what has happened? The Assyrians are defeated. God responds sovereignly. I will do it. And this is what we see here. God is going to intervene. Uh, he intervenes when we fail, and he most definitely in this episode intervenes when there's just frailty. And there's a difference between failure and frailty. I mean, failure is when we have just disregarded the word of God. Ahaz disregarded the word of God. Hezekiah, this is just a matter of frailty. You're a human being, and you've been dying ever since you were born. With each breath, we are all dying, are we not? That's frailty. Now, that frailty is connected to the ultimate failure of mankind in sin, but no one is in sin because they have cancer. This is why these monsters are just horrible when they tell people that something's wrong with them because they have cancer. These false um, broken pot preachers that say this sort of thing. It's wrong. It should not be tolerated. You should have no tolerance for that madness because it dishonors God. 
So you see this here. God responds. He gives him a sign, the shadow of the stairway. He asks, if we look at the um, king's account, we won't now, but if you just read through the king's 20 account, where he asks even for more detail about the shadow moving forward or backwards, but God does it. He acts in a sovereign way into one sense, alter time. But this is not unusual that God would do this. Look with me at Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7. Why? Because notice in Isaiah 7. And then Isaiah 7, it says in verse 10, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try patience of men that you will try the patience of God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, what will happen? A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and we will call his name Emmanuel. So he was saying to Hezekiah, ask for a sign. Anything you want, as deep as you want it to be, I can match it. Well, he doesn't ask. God says, I will give you a sign. And it was the greatest sign that could ever be given, perhaps. A virgin is going to be born. Or a child will be born of a virgin. Number four, here's the fourth principle. Finish up here. Understand that prayer should have a priority of worship. So now, he's gotten his word from the Lord. Notice verse 9, a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after illness and recovery. So he's recovered, and Hezekiah pins verses 9 through, uh, well, 10 through 20 here. And it really is a psalm that he kind of walks through. And let me just give you some highlights. Notice, I said, in the middle of my life, I enter the gates of Sheol, I'm deprived of the rest of my years. So he's saying, here, I'm 39 years old, and you're going to take away from me life? I'm in the middle of it. Remember what Moses said, you have 70 years, and you have 80 if you have strength. And now you're going to take life from me. Verse 11, I said, I will not see the Lord, for the Lord in the land of the living. What he means there is, I'm going to die, and I won't interact with you anymore in this side of eternity. Then he says in verse 12, like a shepherd's tent, my dwelling is pulled up and removed from me. You think about a shepherd's tent uh, of people that are moving around. He says, God, you're picking up my tent and you're moving it to the other side of eternity. As a weaver, I rolled up my life. He cuts off me from the loom. Notice verse 13, I compose my soul until morning like a lion, so he breaks all my bones from day until night, you make an end of me. God, this is killing me. Verse 14, like a swallow, like a crane, so I twitter. I moan like a dove. My eyes look wistfully to the heights. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Be my security. So this word oppressed is a, is a technical term. It means actually the pressure that will come from a creditor or a debtor. God, you're pressuring me, and I feel it from your sovereign hand. And then he says, well, this is so beautiful. He says, I am oppressed. Be my security. The NIV says, come to my aid. New King James says, undertake me. The ESV, many of you have, be a pledge of safety for me. 
And it's in a literal sense, God bailed me out. And it's from this word that means to, to have a mortgage or to make a pledge. Genesis 43.9, I will be assured for him. That is, don't allow him to be taken away. Hold me instead. And then, you, did you notice the largest bail ever paid for someone? 2017, largest bail ever paid. Um, actually, it was a person that was accused of murder. Antonio Marquise Willis, Bell County, Texas, $4 billion, $4 billion bail that was slapped on him. Thought he was a flight risk. He could be perhaps a danger to the community. $4 billion. No one could post bail for him at $4 billion. And I just thought it's interesting in the language that's used here that Hezekiah says, God, I'm in debt. Bring me out of it. Help me. Aren't you glad that Colossians 2.14 exists? Jesus canceled the certificate of our debt that was hostile towards us. Then notice, go on. I want you to pay attention. I'm going to jump to verse 17. It says, Lo, for my own welfare, I had great bitterness. What do you think is the truth in there? What What do you believe I want us to see? Notice what he says, lo, for my own welfare, I had great bitterness. God uses what? Difficulty and hurt and pain and his words here, bitterness, but it was for my good. What scripture are you reminded of? For God does what? He works all things together for what? To those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For our welfare, he does it. Remember John 9, the man that's born blind from birth. Why is he born blind? That the glory of God would be demonstrated. The book of 1 Peter, why are you suffering? That Christ would abide on you and in you and through you, and you would be an example to those around you. That maybe even when you respond to them properly, they would glorify God in the day of visitation. This is another reason that we go through difficulty. And all the things that he's facing on top of the siege, on top of the issues with the reform, on top of what the problems that his father had caused, now he's saying you're going to die. But God uses it. So he says, God, be my peace, be my security. And then notice his rationale in verses 18 to 20. He says, for Sheol cannot thank you. See, that sounds familiar to what the psalmist said in Psalm 6. Death can't praise you. Those who go down into the pit can't hope for your faithfulness. It's the living who give thanks to you. Essentially saying, God, let me live so I can praise you on this side of eternity. Um, there's a song. Well, it, you, they used to be called, and I think they still are called, uh, Negro Spirituals. And a lot of these songs were written doing the plight of, of slaves or, or doing Jim Crow laws. And that time as well, many songs are written and you go to the South and, and black churches or just Southern churches, um, they'll sing some of these songs as well. And, and there's one that's pretty famous um, and it's entitled, Ain't Got Time to Die. Yeah. Here's a part of the lyrics. It says, and it was written by Hale Johnson. Lord, He says, I'm keeping so busy praising Jesus, keeping so busy praising Jesus, ain't got time to die. 
Because when I'm healing the sick, when I'm healing the sick, because it's all I want to do, ain't got time to die. Keep so busy working for the kingdom, ain't got time to die. Lord, I keep so busy serving my master, keep so busy serving my master, ain't got time to die. I remember singing that at times as a kid, and there's some people that have done it in different renditions of it, but the truth remains this way. I mean, when you're living for the Lord, you can in fact say to yourself, die, who has time for that? And I got into this conversation with one of my older sons, and we were discussing it. Death, I mean, why would I want to die? I mean, I have an eternity to be with the Lord, but I only have maybe in my life a couple more, three more decades here, and that's it. No, really, I will be rolled up, like Hezekiah said. This life will be over. And they'll make arrangements for me and hope for my kids. And my wife, she's, if she survives me, will say good things about me, right? <laughs> and they won't always tell people, don't lie at a funeral. Because there have been some funerals that you are lying. He was not the person you're saying he was. Well, I'm just telling you the truth. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about, but the person in this obituary is not the same one. Yeah, <laughs> so don't be that person. So I'm thinking my life will be over. I have an eternity with the living God. So let me live. It's time to die. Why do die? And in, in one sense, that's Pauline, isn't it? What did Paul say? Well, I'm torn between these two. I very much would love to be with the Lord, right? But yet for your sake, I'm going to do what? I'm going to ask. I desire to be here so that I might nurture you. Because Paul knew eternity. we should live that way. So he goes to the Lord and he prays. He turns his face to the wall. He prays. He weeps bitterly. And the sovereign God says, I'll give you 15 more years. Live them for me. The question for us is, the years that we have, we don't know how many they are. How will we live? Father, we thank you for your goodness, grace, and mercy. Uh, Guide us as we go from here. In Christ's name.